So, Rachel, what's the deal with the Soul Sword? You've read the Magic miniseries, Miles. It's forged from part of Ileana Rasputin's soul, basically a physical manifestation of her magical powers and her link to Limbo. So it's part of her, right? Yep. Then how come Kitty can wield it? Well, the Soul Sword is kind of a manifestation of Ileana's magical powers, her demonic corruption. When she's dead, or later when she's reverted to childhood and therefore also to innocence, it transfers to the person closest to her, or any way it tries to. So what I'm getting here is that queer subtext is literally magical in the Marvel Universe. Miles, queer subtext is always magical. But again, the Soul Sword isn't just a manifestation of Ileana's magical powers, it's also linked inextricably to Limbo. The demon dimension Ileana took over from Belasco. Right. Oh, wait, 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 go back. You said transfers or tries to. What do you mean tries to? Well, Kitty's never really been comfortable with the Soul Sword, so when Ileana gets de-aged after Inferno, instead of going straight to her, it ends up stuck in a rock outside Excalibur's lighthouse. Wait, 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 the Soul Sword is Excalibur? Excalibur the team, not Excalibur the sword. Anyway, the Soul Sword ends up stuck in a rock outside their lighthouse, waiting for Kitty to claim it. Does she? Well, eventually, Doctor Doom convinces her to claim the sword so that he can then wrest it away for himself. Why does he want it? So he can take over Limbo. So, garden variety megalomania. And turn the entire dimension into a magical metal called Prometheum to provide Latveria with infinitely renewable energy. What?! Hi, I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 56th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera, and guess what? Oh, I know. This is the last one, right? Yes, this is our last Secret Wars 2 crossover episode. After this, we are done. We are out. We never have to talk about the Beyonder again, at least for now, probably, maybe. So, as far as this episode, it is another Secret Wars 2 crossover, and guys, it's... It's good. It's good, but it's kind of a doozy. This is New Mutants, and this is actually a story that we've referenced a couple times previously um, in the Secret Wars episode that was 43, and also a lot last episode when we talked about the X-Men Secret Wars issues, and this is specifically the story where the Beyonder kills the New Mutants. Rachel, I remember you mentioning that for you, this is one of the most memorable New Mutant stories, and it is for me as well. I mean, you know, you certainly have your Demon Bear saga and your, your Legion story, but this right here, it, I, I think it's just because it's so dark and so darkly well done that it really sticks for me. So I read this for the first time without having any of the Secret Wars 2 context. Like, I just read it in context of the New Mutants. Oh, think, me too, yeah. I think I might have read the the X-Men issues like a year or two previously, but again, I marathoned both of those series, so I wasn't really reading them at the same time. And I'm not sure whether I liked it more or less that way, because... New Mutants was so weird, and there was so much stuff that seemed to kind of come out of nowhere that it kind of made sense to me that we'd just be thrown into this story. It worked for me, and I mean, I, I didn't have a lot of context, but I just knew that the Beyonder was this, this omnipotent figure, and he was really scary. I think, honestly, that this story is also where a lot of my general sense of the Beyonder as being just a really terrifying character comes from, because he's legitimately terrifying. Yeah, this is how you do a Secret Wars 2 story right, and I wish there had been more opportunities in the Marvel Universe to do so at the time. So let's let's go ahead and give a little bit of context for where we left off as far as the New Mutants. Okay, so this is going into New Mutants number 36. Charles Xavier is gone, he's out in space, Magneto is running the school, and the kids are 
struggling to adjust to that, and he's struggling to adjust to teaching. There was a lot of uh, sort of angsting and, and going back and forth on, on how they wanted to handle that, with some like Sunspot more than others. But they had decided, yes, Magneto is going to work as a headmaster. We're going to be just fine. Nothing is possibly going to go wrong. We are not going to be annihilated by a cosmic entity and then end up super screwed up for multiple issues. It's going to be great. You'd think they'd have learned from experience. And that's something I do want to go into, though, because, I mean, The New Mutants has always been, I'd say it's always been a dark book, uh, basically ever since Karma, well, not died, but seemed to die at the uh, the end of the first story. For me, I kind of think of this as the third era of New Mutants. You have your sort of, you know, them as students. You have them dealing with a bunch of weird stuff, like Demon Bear Saga, Cloak and Dagger, Legion. And now you have the really dark era of New Mutants that's going to continue for quite a while, well until Louise Simonson's run, I would say. Now, at this point, Claremont is still writing, and the art team is Mary Wilshire and Bill Sinkevich. And, you know, I gotta say, I think this is actually my favorite art team on the book. When he and Wilshire work together, I think they hit something that neither of them quite achieves on their own. Wilshire is a very grounded artist, she's a very expressive artist, and she's a very, very good concrete storyteller. I think of Wilshire's art as very grounded, but it's also very expressive, it's very humane, and it's very character-driven. Sienkiewicz has that sort of brilliant, wild dynamism, and she reigns him in a little bit, and he adds a little bit of energy to her, and the result is just this really, really good synthesis. It works really well, yeah. I mean, for everybody who, you know, watched Chasing Amy and saw the the speech about anchors being fucking tracers, they need to read this run. There are a lot of things you need to unlearn from Chasing Amy. <laughs> yeah, well. A lot of things. Hey, that was very formative in my, uh, my progressive youth, I'll have you know. So anyway, back into the issue. Magneto's running the team, and we open, in fact, with Magneto running a danger room session with just Sunspot. Yeah, now Sunspot's really been unsure of whether he wants to be a superhero for a while now. I mean, Xavier started the team saying, no, 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 you guys are just going to be students, I'm just training to use your powers, and clearly that was not the case. I mean, they were doing superhero stuff from pretty much day one. It strikes me, though, that Sunspot's reluctance isn't so much about being a superhero. It's about being a superhero in his current cultural context, because he wants to be a hero. He wants to be the guy who rushes in and saves the day. He wants to be Magnum P.I., and we've seen him really embrace all of those roles. It's just that he has a lot of trouble with the rejection that goes with being one of the X-Men. I think, too, the sense of being in over his head. He can be a really resourceful, smart guy, but he's very, very young. Yeah, and I think that's really been highlighted as, you know, the Beyonder has showed up and has just made it very clear that he's this omnipotent being that no matter how powerful you are, you just, if, he's, if he wants to do something, he's going to. And that's really screwed Bobby up in the same sense. Nightcrawler's response to the Beyonder was a massive crisis of faith. Bobby is having really similar reactions, but this isn't about faith. This is about personal confidence. So he sort of storms off and uh, Magneto starts wondering, like, you know, what am I doing here? I mean, he's really been not confident in his, in his abilities to run the school since the start, and this is not helping. Like, and how much does that suck? It's like, hey, I'm gonna take over the school for my potentially dying best friend and former rival. I'm gonna turn over a new leaf. I'm gonna do this right. Aw, crap. Secret Wars 2. Secret Wars 2, as far as I can tell, is all about stripping everyone but Molecule Man and the Beyonder of their agency. And so it's not only messing with continuity and messing with book pacing and messing with stories, it's really unjustifiably messing with the heads of characters who are used to being the driving forces in their own stories. So while all this drama is going on back at the school, uh, meanwhile Kitty, Pride, and Ilyana, Magic, are planning to meet up. Kitty's at the library and Ilyana's on a train coming toward her when all of a sudden the Beyonder shows up on that train to say, Hey Ilyana, I'm going to be really sanctimonious because I'm in my helping people reach their true potential stage. I'm going to fix you. It's a literal derailment in the middle of a metaphorical derailment. <laughs> it totally is, you're right. 
Now, th- he's been doing this. We saw this in the X-Men uh, Secret Wars 2 crossover we covered last time when he tried to help Phoenix reach her true potential. He sees that magic's all conflicted. He's like, all right, let's fix this. And then the subway car floats away into the sky. Well, before then, what he does is basically rip out her dark child persona. He forces it to manifest. He does something, we're not sure what at this point, such that it disappears. I feel like the Beyonder is every jerk who says content warnings are pointless because it's therapeutic for people to have to face their fears. Like, listen, asshole, you are not these people's therapist. You don't get to just show up and mess with people's heads and be like, I'm going to make you a better person by fucking with you. Mm -hmm. That's not okay, Beyonder. Don't do that shit. And so Kitty, who's at the library, she's, you know, studying, reading, whatever, and all of a sudden this sword appears in front of her. And she picks up the sword and suddenly she is also wearing armor. And this is Ileana's soul armor. We've seen this on Kitty once previously in Secret Wars 2 number 1 and then subsequently in New Mutants number 30. And that seems to happen basically when Ileana is completely lost control of her magical self, it just transfers over to Kitty. And so she's like, wait, this, this, this can't be good. And sure enough, demons attack the library, and that's not so good. I want to go back for a second because there's something else that Kitty's got here that really threw me for a loop, and that is Ilyana's bloodstone pendant that has the actual pieces of her soul in it. Right, right. That is the pendant that Belasco, the demon who sort of raised-ish her, was gradually trying to fill with bloodstones that represented her corruption. Does that show up other times that Kitty manifests the soul armor? I may be misremembering, but I don't remember it ever appearing on Kitty otherwise. Yeah, I don't remember that either. We'd have to look that up. And so, you know, back at the mansion, all of a sudden demons start showing up also. The New Mutants are having a pool party and giant demon fight. As they're trying to beat back these demons, trying to figure out what's going on, at that point, the flying train car shows up with Ilyana in it. Sam goes up to meet her, and Ilyana seems different. She's really mellow. She's changed. She's not concerned about the demons. The demons aren't important. What's important is the Beyonder's message. She is super brainwashed. Yeah, I remember back in college, we had a couple friends that joined a, well, not a cult exactly. It was kind of, a, it was a cult. But uh, thankfully, they, they escaped it. Um, but yeah, that was kind of the demeanor that they had. They just knew how the world works completely. They wanted to tell you all about it. It. She and Sam make brief contact, and he immediately agrees with her. He actually compares it, uh, which I love, to uh, Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke, where there's this like alien race that helps humanity join this collective consciousness. Even brainwashed, creepy, beyonder hive mind Sam drops classic sci-fi references. And so as this is going on, then look, there are more demons, and this really huge demon shows up. And this is the one who attacked Kitty at the library. Yeah, with Kitty, like, as a pendant on its necklace. Like, she's hanging from its neck, and he starts pulling out her soul to, as we clearly see, create the fourth bloodstone in Ileana Rasputin's bloodstone amulet. Whoa! So that's a big deal, because, you know, like we were saying, that represents Ileana's soul and its progress toward ultimate corruption. It's already three-fifths of the way there. Getting Bloodstone number four would be a really, really big deal, especially from her best friend. And that's the point where Ileana is able to break through the Beyonder's conditioning, which is kind of amazing when you think about it, because, I mean, he is literally omnipotent. Yeah, and I will say that's, that is a good thing about Secret Wars 2, is that it gives the writers of the, of the various comics where the Beyonder shows up an opportunity to show their heroes being truly heroic, you know, overcoming these impossible odds to make even the slightest uh, progress against this foe. Well, and it drives home the importance of a moral victory, which is something that we're going to be looking at much more closely next issue. So, Ilyana does basically realize that, all right, you know, my magic has gone out of me, my dark self has gone out of me because of what the Beyonder did, if I'm going to stop this, I need it back. I need to 
go back down the path toward evil that I had been on before. Well, oh, damn. Yana. Man, she is such a perfect Greek tragedy. She is, yeah, because you see it coming. I mean, Ilyana ultimately, you know, spoiler alert, she will ultimately become the Dark Child in Inferno. And a lot of those face heel turns in comics, they can seem like they're out of nowhere, especially when it comes to big events. And with Ilyana, no, you can see it every step of the way. It's just sad the entire time. The sense of inevitability in New Mutants is so effective. Just it makes everything a little more intense. So I'm going to have a brief aside here, especially as we come into one of my favorite issues of New Mutants ever coming up next. So I know most people came to this podcast for X-Men specifically, like, you know, Cyclops and Wolverine and Storm and all of them. And that's totally rad and we love them a lot. But New Mutants is a phenomenal book. It's the first series I ever personally collected all of. And guys, you are doing yourself a disservice if you do not track this stuff down. This book has so much good, weird stuff and we are right in the thick of it. And you've been writing to us a lot saying that you're having trouble finding these. A lot of this series isn't on Marvel Unlimited. While a lot of it's been collected in Trader, at least the entire Claremont run has, those are all out of print. We know there are some folks out there from Marvel who are listening. We would love to see New Mutants back in print or back available again. I mean, first of all, so folks can follow along because we like being able to have conversations with with listeners about this. But second, because it is some of the best and in a lot of ways, most definitive work that you have put out. That would especially be beautiful in Marvel Unlimited, that and X-Factor. While we're asking for things, let's ask for that. I was going to say we'd also like a pony, but we really wouldn't. Emma Frost would just set it on fire anyway. So the Beyonder wanders off, just sort of doing the ugh, humans, and Ilyana is, you know, she manages to save the day. I mean, she's feeling very bittersweet about it because she had to just re-accept her dark self. Yeah, there's this moment where, where they're talking about how they won, and she's like, we win, Sam. The world is saved. Hooray for us. Yeah, it's super sad. Just with this entirely flat face. Uh Uh-huh. And so the next issue, which is number 37, is also a Secret Wars 2 crossover. And we, we, a little bit we suffer from the same problem we saw in Uncanny X-Men. Going from one Secret Wars 2 crossover issue to another, it just feels like a little much. You know, this actually works a lot better for me, because with that, it just felt like repetition. With this, it feels like escalation. Well, the Beyonder kills the new mutants. Can we talk about the cover real quick first? Yeah, totally. I really love this cover, and this cover for me is is actually the definitive Beyonder cover. He is slaughtering the New Mutants, and he's doing it very casually. He's sitting there, looking dispassionate, staring out at the reader like he's not even paying attention to the fight. Four characters are attacking him from behind. He's already killed Karma. He's got a foot on, on Magic's shoulder. He's throttling the life out of Rain and not even looking at what he's doing. It's such an unsettling cover. And it really fits the issue inside as well. And for my money, I would say this is the most engaging appearance of the Beyonder in the Marvel Universe ever. This issue right here. Absolutely. And so, yeah, it opens with everything being pretty much okay after last issue. You know, the characters are all watching a John Wayne movie on TV. They're having like a slumber party, playing around with each other, uh, referencing the movie. Rain is feeling a little weird about the fact that, you know, Native Americans are being so stereotyped when one of their best friends is a Native American who's, you know, right there. Yeah, Rain is a really good friend. I like how hard Rain works to actively, like, be a good friend. It's not just that she pays attention to things. Like, she's obviously gone out of her way to actually look at and consider stuff that she had never even thought about a dozen issues ago. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, Rain Sinclair is one of my favorite Marvel characters. I love her so much. Um, she was also one of my earliest crushes, which is only somewhat relevant. She is a really neat kid, and she's she's one of the characters who I think is going to be hit hardest by the stuff that happens in this arc. Oh, absolutely. So they're all having fun and playing around, and as New Mutants so often does, it immediately contrasts that with something much darker, which is Danny turning around and seeing these strange visions over the heads of all of her friends. So Ilyana's got a demon, uh, Shan's got an angel, Amara has the god Pluto, which is the first hint at what Danny's actually seeing. Rain is next. Hers is the only one I absolutely can't identify. I looked and looked and looked online and I tried to think of what it was. I ended up asking Twitter. I cannot lock down what it is. It looks like a saint or an angel, but it wouldn't make sense for it to be either of those because Rain is Scots Presbyterian and they don't do saints and angels. Also because whatever it is, it's holding a liar. As far as I know, the only major Christian figure who gets regularly represented that way is St. Cecilia, who's the patron saint of music and has nothing to do with what this particular vision is actually about. Listeners, if you have any idea what might be going on here, let us know. Or Chris Claremont, if you're listening and you remember, uh, drop us a line. Um, Yeah, and then we see the Grim Reaper over Doug. By this point, it's very clear what's going on. Magus, which is Warlock's father, over Warlock. And Sam has this sort of like Southern preacher-looking dude over his head. No, it's Solomon Cain. It looks exactly like Solomon Cain, or at least like a Puritan preacher. Well, I mean, he probably would have read, you know, the pulp Solomon Cain novels, so it could be. I do love the idea that Solomon Cain is Sam's personal conception of death. Yeah, and that's what Danny is seeing. She is seeing visions of death over the heads of all of her friends, and she's seen this before when the characters were in Asgard and she first got her Valkyrie powers. She saw that over Wolverine before he almost died, before he would have died had she not intervened, and she's like, wait, this this can't be right. This cannot be right. I've got to get out of here. I've got to clear my head. What's going on? Well, first, though, she goes and looks in the mirror and sees Hela, who is the Norse goddess of death, who actually talks to her through the mirror and confirms that, yeah, this is a Valkyrie thing and these folks are all doomed. That is a terrible superpower. I mean, a useful superpower, but God, that's rough. Right? It's the worst. It's not these people might die. It's these people are going to die. She flies around in uh, the clouds on Brightwind, her, uh, her winged horse or Pegasus that she got from Asgard. And just starts to have these visions, um, and she sees her grandfather, Black Eagle, who's talking to a younger version of her in a memory that she's having. And specifically, he's telling her about counting coup, and this is a Plains Indians tradition, all about symbolic victory, basically being in a position where you could kill your enemy, but instead just touching them and, and escaping unscathed. It only counts if there's actual serious danger, like there has to be actual risk to your life. It has to be a situation where you would be justified in killing your enemy, but you just basically boop them on the nose instead. Black Eagle is talking about it specifically in context of white Americans and Europeans slaughtering American Indians. They didn't acknowledge this tradition because they had no sense of shame. There was no honor to destroy. We're going to come back to this later in this issue because it's going to become suddenly and acutely important. So as all this is going on, the one new mutant who was not present for all of this, you know, the slumber party and the visions of death, Roberto DaCosta, Sunspot, he's in Manhattan because he's been having all these doubts. He just wanted to get away as well. And uh, he ends up um, seeing a an accident happening, um, a construction accident, and goes to assist, you know, basically announcing himself, Sunspot is here, I'll take care of it, and trying to hold up a crane so that these pair of people who are trapped under it can get out. It shifts, they're going to die, and She-Hulk shows up and saves the day, and gets all of the credit. Well, except for one cop who recognizes what he did and is... He doesn't care what the world says about mutants. They're aces in his book. It's a validation that Sunspot really desperately needs. Yeah, but it does continue him wondering, like, where the hell do I belong? What do I do? I need to stay gone for a little while longer, which is probably a good move. Because back at the X-Mansion, the Beyonder shows up 
out of nowhere. Now, the Beyonder is angry because the New Mutants rejected his quote-unquote gift last issue. They did not want to be part of his magic super self-realization called Hive Mind, and so now he's here to kill them. They quickly realize, like, shit, this is serious, and so Liana just shows up and says, hey, spare them, but take me, and he disintegrates her and then goes to kill the rest of them. And they fight back, and he just takes them out one at a time. He kills Karma, he almost kills Danielle. Well, and he does this after Danielle uses her powers on him. And I think it's worth reading that quote because it's such a good window into the Beyonder. She discovers an entity afraid of life as of death, whose essence is an amalgam of both and a denial of them, who is integral to the existence and fabric of the universe, yet threatens the same universe with extinction. Yeah, I mean, we have a few of the New Mutants dead, and they do finally take him out. Wow. And then Danielle realizes that, no, she remembers when she fought the Demon Bear. She thought she beat it, and it just came right back. And sure enough, the Beyonder does, and he kills them one after another. He seals magma and cannonball underground and crushes them in the earth. He uh, zaps Warlock to the point where he's almost dead, at which point uh, Doug Ramsey gives up his life, his life glow to save his friend and turns into a skeleton. Well, he tries to. My sense was that the Beyonder zapped him before he could. This is going to become a running theme with Doug. (laughs) Yeah, and eventually all of the new mutants who are present, except for Danielle Moonstar have been killed. And not just like, oh, maybe they survived, where's the body? Like, no, we have seen them all graphically die on panel. I cannot overemphasize how scary the Beyonder is here. There's this splash page where he rises back up after they've killed him, just with this blazing power in his eyes. Again, he's just this normal-looking guy, and somehow that makes it worse. And he's killing them with this utter detached, casual cruelty. He's like a kid pulling the wings off bugs. It's really disturbing. Yeah, and Danielle's just standing there confronting him with all of her friends dead at her feet, and he says, You do not flee. Why bother? We never had a prayer. You could have finished us any time. Was it fun to taunt us with false hope? Something new for you to learn about being human? I'm wasting my breath. You don't care. You never did. We're nothing to you. And what she does is count coup. She reaches out and touches him and flies off. And she knows that this is an empty gesture. She knows that he is going to kill her, no matter what. What this is about and what I feel like it comes back to in Black Eagle's story is dying with integrity and identity intact, which she is able to do, I think, in ways that maybe none of her teammates are in this story. Yeah, both as a member of her tribe, with uh, someone with her heritage, as a member of the New Mutants, as a mutant, as a human, all of that is intact as she flies off into the distance with the perspective still locked onto the Beyonder himself and just falls into dust. And that's the end of the issue. The issue ends with all of the main characters having been killed. There's a bit of closing narration if you want, you know, to up the haunting ante. In Colorado, William and Margaret Proudstar forget they ever had a daughter. In Manhattan, Roberto da Costa forgets his best friends. In Salem Center, virgin forest lines the shores of Breakstone Lake. Of Professor Xavier's school, of its youngest pupils, nothing remains. Not even memories. He hasn't just killed them, he's wiped them out of existence. The only person who remembers they even existed was Kitty, and you can go back to that in the previous episode where we covered Uncanny X-Men 202. Yeah, okay, so between this and the next issue of New Mutants, some kind of important stuff happens, namely in the last issue of Secret Wars 2, the Beyonder, in his final battle with, well, everybody, basically, resurrects the New Mutants. He literally resurrects them from the dead and sends them off to fight the heroes to buy him some time. And so after that, they're out there, they're alive, they're back in people's memories— But they remember everything that happened, and that's where we pick up in the aftermath of this issue. Actually, in fact, I think the next story is called Aftermath. Man, there is nothing 
in this series that has stuck with me as hard as the opening to New Mutants number 38. I know exactly what you're talking about, that nightmare sequence, yeah. Like, I mean, and this is is my second most vivid association with this series, is after Doug Ramsey's death, and it's Warlock trying to reanimate his body and take it back to Doug's parents' house to convince Doug to come back to life. And this stuck harder. Yeah, basically the really memorable stuff in New Mutants is either Bill Sienkiewicz's art or terrible, terrible things happening. Yeah, New Mutants is really dark. I know we say that a lot, but god damn. <laughs> Very much to his credit, though. It does it well. It's never meaningless. Right now, we've actually got a new art team, and we're going to have different art teams on, I think, every one of these of the next few issues. This is Rick Leonardi. He's still being inked by Bill Sienkiewicz, and there's a stylistic shift here that I think works really well. The art gets less animated and intense. Sienkiewicz is following Leonardi's pencils more more tightly than I think he did with Wilshire, so less of his style is coming through. And there's a general sense of sort of the animation being a little bit sucked out of the book, which is really, really totally appropriate. Yeah, because what we see, well, you know, let's just dive into it. So we always have our Danger Room cold opens, or the characters engaged in some sort of fight or training exercise to introduce them. And it's kind of like that, but it quickly becomes clear that something's not quite right. The New Mutants are just fighting foe after foe after foe seemingly for no reason. And finally, Magneto says, well, it's the end of the day, it's time for bed. And they all just zip out of their costumes and immediately into pajamas. Um, Warlock and Doug zip out of their bodies into each other, which yeah, is... Yeah, like, is, uh, they pull down zippers and the other one is just underneath, and it's very surreal and dreamlike and disquieting. They're all being very matter-of-fact and cheerful about this, like they're getting ready for bed, and then they go to bed in open graves. Yeah, all saying, you know, good night to each other, calling each other by name... That mix of normalcy with this ridiculously macabre imagery that is what makes it an effective nightmare. What it turns out is that this is the dream that all of the students have been having repeatedly since the Beyonder brought them back. But when they're not asleep, they are very different than they were before. They're just emotionally dead. You know, their faces are completely blank. They only speak when spoken to, and then only minimally. They're just going through the motions of their life. Now, Magneto doesn't really know what's happened. He just knows that all of the students have suddenly just become super listless and detached and miserable. He's sort of brooding about this. You know, he feels like a constant failure with all the stuff that's going on. Late at night, he goes into his own darkened study and uh, a match lights, and it's Emma Frost sitting at his desk lighting a cigarette, waiting for him. Now, Emma has sensed his students' psychic distress from all the way over at the Massachusetts Academy. That's how screwed up these kids are. And she's like, hey, you know... I can help. I'm a telepath. Xavier's gone. You can't do this, and you need me. And Magneto goes, nope, not you. Nope, get the hell out. I can do this. I can do this. I swear to God, I promised I was going to do it. I'm, I'm going to do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. He can't do it. No, and I mean, we see you know, more scenes of the New Mutants just being listless, going through their classes, their training exercises, and just being awful at them and not giving a shit, with one exception, that being Danielle Moonstar. Again, she died under somewhat different circumstances than the rest of her teammates, with much more agency. But she also gets a pep talk from a very special surprise cameo in this issue, which, Miles, I feel like you should be the one to introduce. Yes, I should, because she sees a seemingly normal frog sitting in Brightwind's stable staring at her, and she's like, why is there a frog staring at me? That's a very unusual thing. And then the frog starts talking, very nobly, in a somewhat archaic tone of voice. Valkyrie, thou art but mortal besides, a gift as great as it is unique. Thou must ne'er lose thy faith, young warrior. Thy worst foe, the shriveler of souls who must ne'er be yielded to, is despair. Triumph over it, and thou wilt triumph over all. I'd like to remind you, this is a frog talking to Daniel Moonstar and glowing bright. While she is combing a pegasus. 
And then, you know, he hops off and she's like, wait, what? I frog Thor, huh? And, you know, it could be any number of things that snaps her out of this despair. It could be her willpower. It could be her Valkyrie connection. Or it could be, ladies and gentlemen, the frog of thunder. And so, yeah, she becomes the only one of the new mutants to really have herself back at all, but she's still super down, she's super messed up, and she's really disturbed at the fact that she sees her fellow students, you know, barely being alive, and her headmaster unable or unwilling to do anything about it. And other people are starting to notice this too. The Ramses actually come to visit Magneto and are like, well, you know, when Doug first came here, he was really happy, but he just hasn't seemed like himself lately. Is something going on? Should we be, you know, thinking about withdrawing him? As it turns out, something, in fact, is going on. Well, something else other than the being killed and brought back to life thing. Magneto eventually realizes, you know, I can't do this. Emma Frost was right, and he calls her to his office, introduces her to the New Mutants, and says, effectively immediately, I'm transferring you all to the Massachusetts Academy. And Danny is like, oh, hell no, not doing that. And everyone else is like, meh. And the issue closes with Magneto with a single tear running down his face, just wondering if he did the right thing, if there was any right way to handle this underneath a giant portrait of Professor Charles Xavier. I wonder if that portrait was there before Magneto took over the school. That'd be a little narcissistic if that it was, right? That would be really right? funny. But the other thing that happens is that we do see an aside to Empath, one of the Hellions who has the mutant power of emotional manipulation, watching all this grinning, and Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander, who are two of the people who, two humans who work at the Xavier Institute with a convoluted backstory, find him and are like, hey, what are you doing? We are taking you to the headmaster. And he says, no, you're not, because you are passionately, madly in lust with each other, and that's going to consume you until you burn out. That's going to become very relevant later, but... If I had to come up with a defining characteristic for him, he is a rapist. Straight up. That is his thing. That is what he does. That's what this is. Yeah. Meanwhile, the New Mutants do in fact transfer, except for Danielle and for Warlock, who's doing okay because he's not human. But the other seven New Mutants do transfer to the Massachusetts Academy and become Hellions. And that brings us to New Mutants number 39. We've got a new art team on this one. That's Keith Pollard on pencils and Del Barris on inks. And they are a really good team for this. Like Leonardi, they're very, very expressive. And I, I love the way they draw faces. Yeah, and especially in this issue with all of the New Mutants' very blank faces contrasted with the Hellions' animated ones, it's night and day. Even, even if they weren't distinct as far as their character designs, you could totally tell who is a member of which team based on that. No one really knows what happened to these kids, including Emma. She knows they're really messed up. She knows there's been some kind of massive psychic damage and trauma, but she doesn't really know about the Beyonder, so she's trying to figure out whether she's going to be able to help them. And meanwhile, the Hellions are welcoming their new classmates. The Hellions started to become more interesting and sympathetic earlier in this series, but this is where I actively start to really like a lot of them. Yeah, with the exception of Empath and Roulette, the other characters are really sympathetic and really awesome. So let's do a very, very, very fast, like, lightning round reminder of who the Hellions are, because we haven't seen these guys for a while. Okay, so we have Manuel De La Rocha, Empath, we mentioned him before. And he's the worst. We have Jetstream, that is uh, Harun ibn Salah al-Rashid. He's basically got the same power set as Sam Guthrie. He's a nice kid. He's not very interesting. We have Sharon Smith, Cat's Eye, who's a, who can shift into a cat form. She actually started with her cat form as the default, so she was convinced she was a cat who could turn into a girl, and her personality very much feels like that. Roulette, Jennifer Stavros, total jerk, uh, makes discs that impart good and bad luck. It's a little bit like the Scarlet Witch, but much more specific. Yeah, and then Marie-Ange Colbert. That's Tarot, who can physically manifest images from tarot cards and can also predict the future a little bit. Finally, we have Thunderbird 2. That's James Proudstar. He is the younger brother of John Proudstar, who is one of the X-Men from All New, All Different, and the first of the X-Men to die. So, yeah, the New Mutants have joined the team, and, you know, Empath is being terrible, Cat's Eye is being awesome, 
And I gotta say, I wish we had gotten more New Mutants and Hellions teaming up when things were not truly terrible. Yeah, me too, because their dynamics are so interesting and so fun, and the New Mutants get counterparts and foils in the Hellions that they don't necessarily have in each other. Like, Rain gets an actual peer. Yeah, while this is going on, one thing that I find really interesting is that Emma is working on healing the psychic wounds of the New Mutants, and we actually see a side of her we haven't really seen before, and that is her being very compassionate. Yeah, this is, I think, our first glimpse of Emma Frost the teacher. And meanwhile, back at the Xavier Institute, Magneto has become Mag- Magnemo. I'm, I'm trying to think of a good term. Sadnito? Sadnito. I like that one. Later on, he's going to turn into Madnito. This, my, I have these things written in all caps in my notes. <laughs> we are professionals, ladies and gentlemen. very late. Danny tries to convince Magneto that they need to get the band back together, that he needs to buck up and deal with it, and he just refuses. He's scared to fail these kids more than he already has, and Danny's scared to go fight Emma on her own because, I mean, she's not a match for her. As all this is going on, uh, Dan- Danielle just leaves, and then Magneto's interrupted a little bit later by the returns Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander, who we mentioned ran into Empath, and they look different. Significantly. And they, think, what they really look like, and what I assumed at first, is that they'd been with the Morlocks, and that is not the case. No, because they're wearing this sort of bondage gear with, you know, more radical haircuts and stuff, and it would be easy to say, hey, look, silly 80s design— But we find out what's going on is that ever since Empath did his Empath whammy on them, they've been just obsessed with passion for each other and craving more and more extreme sexual experiences until it basically burned them out as human beings completely and they were ready to die. They've come back. They're like, no, we we weren't willing to give him that victory. And in, in doing so, they seem to have broken out of it. But, you know, presumably very psychologically scarred. And Magneto's like, wait a minute. He did this to you. He was here. Why have I been so willing to roll over and give up on this? He did this to me, too. And this is where we see Angry God Magneto come out. What Angry God Magneto does at this point is narrate what's going to happen. And while he's doing it, build and then smash metal effigies of Empath and then the White Queen. It's sort of like a magnetic PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> um, but yeah, he is, yeah, he yeah, is furious is. and justifiably so because there's been so much damage done in his eyes just so the White Queen can gain control of these young mutants. And so he goes on a good old-fashioned rampage. Now, unfortunately for him, he is rampaging at a telepath who can recognize even from afar that this is about to happen. And Emma Frost is a crafty, crafty person. So she goes, okay, can't take on an angry Magneto by myself. My students, not really prepared, not really going to work. Also, I think the New Mutants would probably take his side. Can't call the Hellfire Club because they're going to give me shit for losing control of the situation. Who are you going to call, Emma? How about, by way of the police, the freaking Avengers? Yeah, she calls the Sheriff's Department and says Magneto is coming, uh, presumably figuring that the Sheriff will do what the Sheriff immediately does, which is call in the big guns. And so the Avengers are like, wait, uh, Magneto, we heard he was kind of a decent dude these days. Well... Apparently not. Maybe he's trying to form a new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants by kidnapping these children. Let's take him out. They've been unwilling to trust him before. I mean, he's why they wouldn't call the X-Men when Gene came back. Yeah, so they're already kind of iffy, and they're like, well, this clinches it. He must be evil. Time to take down Magneto. And that brings us into New Mutants number 40. This has yet another penciler, Jackson Guise. He's going to be a regular here for a while. Inking him is Kyle Baker, and it is so weird seeing Kyle Baker ink someone else's pencils because he's still so distinctive, and it's just, I mean... Like, I I read this and I I just sort of want it to turn into why I hate Saturn. Yeah, uh, guys, if you haven't read any Kyle Baker, you should. He's a phenomenal cartoonist. I I really love his stuff. Yeah, if you want a weird window into comics that have been formative to, like, my personality, life, and speech patterns, why I hate Saturn is really far up there. It's one of the first graphic novels that I got really, really into before I was even reading superhero comics. And it's, yeah, Kyle Baker is amazing. And he's, he's just a stunningly expressive cartoonist and illustrator. 
and immediately recognizable. And so it's it's really, really weird to see his style kind of impressed on top of a penciler who works in a very different mode. Totally. But yeah, meanwhile, what happens? So Magneto is going with Warlock to the Massachusetts Academy. Warlock has turned himself into a plane, into his version of the Blackbird, which has like feathers and little bird feet and a big periscope on top. He's like, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? Yes. Yes, Warlock, you were doing it so right. Can we talk about Magneto and Warlock real quick? Yeah, let's do. I love this version of Magneto, and and I especially love how Magneto talks to Warlock. And we've been seeing this, we saw this in 35 too, Magneto just takes Warlock at face value. Right, he's not like embarrassed that Warlock is a big basically cartoon bird plane. He's like, okay, thanks for being a plane, we're gonna make this happen. And I think something that gets lost in interpretations of Magneto a lot is how much he cares about mutants. We see Magneto the villain who's all about destroy all the humans, And writers, I think, forget that the flip side of that is protect the mutants, because Magneto is someone who really cares about this stuff, and especially, you know, we've seen over the years again and again, and even in some of his his worst personifications, as someone who, who really, really cares about mutant youth and about, you know, sort of celebrating all of those individual weird mutations. Yeah, even in the really, really good Magneto series currently going on, I feel like they've just forgotten this very important era. Which is weird, because it would jive thematically so well with so much of what Colin Bunn has been doing, because honestly, what a lot of Magneto's time on the New Mutants is about is just grinding home the lesson over and over and over again as he tries to be a good guy by Charles Xavier's definition that doing the right thing is not going to protect the people he's trying to protect. It's not going to be enough. Right. And so, yeah, the Avengers attack him, and he's like, okay, well, I can't really fully tell them what's going on because I don't want to violate the privacy of my students, which, damn, dude. And they manage to pretty seriously injure Warlock, so he's like, okay, I don't want to fight them, but I need to get them away from Warlock so they won't go after him. And he's basically doing all of the wrong things for exactly the right reasons. And so, yeah, they continue to have this big fight, and not too far away, Magma notices this weird seismic disturbance from the fight, and she says, wait a minute, I I think Magneto's nearby, guys. At which point, Liana checks it out, confirms that yes, he is, and, and the new mutants, as the cavalry, come on in to help their teacher, who's gradually getting beaten the hell up by Earth's mightiest heroes. And Captain America is starting to realize that there might be more going on than he saw. You know, to Cap's credit, he figures out that Magneto is not attacking them. He's specifically, you know, drawing them away from someone else who's injured. And he's not fighting the way he normally does. When Ilyana shows up, he's concerned about keeping her out of the fight. At the same time, though, they're having this argument that's worth touching on. Magneto's like, what the hell? Why are you going after me? You have Namor on your team. Seriously? Seriously? Right. Since when am I, have I ever been as huge a dick as Namor? And Captain America's like, well, yeah, I know he was a supervillain, but he helped us fight the Nazis in World War II. Oh, you went there, Steve Rogers. Right, and Magneto's like, you're really going to bring up the Nazis around me? Screw this. And that's where things kind of go to hell, and thankfully the New Mutants are able to come in and help. So they escape, leaving the Avengers sort of in the lurch, and Magneto quickly realizes, you know what? I have my students back, but I do need Emma's help, and Emma needs my help because neither of us has been successful on our own. And she comes back and helps him. You know, Magneto at one point wonders why she helps. And she says this line that for me is the perfect, precise Emma Frost in a nutshell line, which is, I could say the kindness of my heart or that I have no use for damaged goods. Choose the reply you like best. That's so perfect. This is the birth of, I think, the Emma Frost we know and love. This ambiguously gray, full of herself, but with a good heart, but also kind of terrible superhero supervillain. The Emma in this arc is my definitive Emma. She is this blend of genuine compassion and ruthless utilitarianism. She really, really cares, 
and she's going to do the right thing, but she's going to see what she can get out of it at the same time. You know, she comes out of this recognizing that, you know, she's won a great advantage here in the hearts and minds of the students, and that's going to make a difference next time they confront them. It's part of what makes her such an effective villain, but it's also later on going to be what makes her an incredibly effective superhero and also a really interesting foil as a team leader to Cyclops. It's really fascinating seeing the two of them as leaders of the X-Men and the mutant community together because they've got very similar strengths that they approach and use very differently. Basically, the combination of caring a lot, but also being very grounded in what needs to be done. So that's where we leave off. The New Mutants decide to rejoin the Xavier Institute, except for Rain, who wants to go back and uh, be with Moira McTaggart in Scotland again. And things seem relatively quiet for the moment. But this is the Marvel Universe, so they will not stay that way for long. In the meantime, you have some questions. So we have an anonymous listener on Tumblr who asked... You've covered the Firestar miniseries, another in the long line of domineering mutant plutocrat Emma Frost's early crimes. How does she get a pass for her long criminal history, yet Professor X remains eternally in the doghouse? Well, I can't speak for continuity, but I can speak from my own perspective and what I've seen. Emma Frost gets a pass because she doesn't have any illusions about what she is. She recognizes the moral lines she's crossed. Xavier largely doesn't, and that's really scary. And what ties into that for me is, is their characterization. When Emma is shown manipulating people, when she's shown doing awful stuff, it's usually in light of her being a villain. The, the writers seem to recognize that this is a villainy. With Xavier, the writers seem to approach those arcs with much the same attitude as actually Xavier does, which is, you know, this is no, no, he's, he's a hero, he's doing the right thing because it's necessary. And I find that much, much more disturbing. Xavier unsettles me a lot more as a theoretical person and as a fictional character in terms of his portrayal. And so I feel like, you know, when I'm talking about him, it's more important to call out those transgressions because they're not addressed in the text the way Emma's are. Emma gets her reckonings over and over and over again. There's not a question over, you know, whether Emma was doing the right thing the many times she very clearly was not. With Xavier, there's so much rationalization. Calling out the Charles Xavier is really creepy thing is filling in something that should be but isn't acknowledged. That's my answer to that. Everyone else can speak for themselves. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Also on Tumblr, More Like a Justice League asks... What is the biggest discrepancy you two have over something X-related, whether it's a character you don't agree on or a story one of you likes but the other hates? So I wish we had like a super uh, gossipy, dramatic answer to this, the, like that our marriage was almost torn apart by how we feel about like Cecilia Reyes or something. But um, honestly, we agree on most X-Men related stuff. I mean, you know, we each have our own individual favorites, like Rachel's more of a Cyclops fan than me. I'm more of a Longshot fan than her. But overall, we tend to line up a lot. I tend to, I think, see sort of the happy, good stuff within both creative decisions and stories where, Rachel, I think you tend to be more uh, coming at it from more of a critic perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for you, I think liking things involves overlooking a lot of sins. And mm -hmm. for me, it doesn't particularly. I mean, for me, there's there's no fundamental conflict between really loving something and also seeing it as, as very profoundly flawed. So I guess if we were to come up with one difference, it would be that. I know it's not like a specific character or storyline. It's more of a sort of general conceptual thing, but right there. I mean, what it comes down to, though, is like Miles says, we've read a lot of this together, and we specifically read a lot of this together while we were growing up. Like, we made friends over having really similar taste in books when we were like 13. We exchanged books constantly and we talked about them constantly. And it's really hard to tell where the development of one of our tastes starts and the other stops. 
But also, and more relevantly, I think we're also just both people who really like liking things, and we really, really like liking things together. We can pretty much always both find things that we value and enjoy in pretty much every book, and we try really hard even when we don't necessarily have exactly the same feelings about something. I feel like we can usually come to a point where we, we recognize and sort of get and and respect each other's perspectives on it. So there, there don't tend to be any, like, really diehard clashes. Right. I mean, you know, that being said, maybe we'll get to some of the late 90s stuff that we haven't uh, actually read, and we'll get into giant fights, and we'll do them on the show, and it'll be very dramatic. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> I think we're, Gambit, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. All right. So we are supported by awesome Patreon folks, and some of the tiers of Patreon subscriptions come with thanks in a variety of voices from a variety of fictional characters. To that end, this episode, I will turn things over unfortunately and grudgingly, to the Beyonder. Remember me, Andrew Vestal and David Pemberton? The one from beyond? My only goal was to help humanity, to show you your true potential so that I might find my own meaning. But no matter how many monthly comics I disrupted, my omnipotent generosity was rebuffed. Now, Andrew and David, you must be erased so the world may be cleansed. I only wish you understood my tragic path my cosmic angst, my white suit, and jerry curl. Wow. Anyway. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. We are produced by Bobby Roberts, the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes of our show come out on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content. It's episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. And I gotta say, a lot of you have been asking things like, where can I find your reviews? Where can I find the companion posts? Those are all at rachelandmiles.com. All of that stuff is there. So, Rachel, like you mentioned, the podcast is totally listener-supported by our, uh, our supporters on Patreon. You guys are rad. Everything we do is made possible by your generosity and support. If you'd like to become a supporter, if you're not already, go to the aforementioned rachelandmiles.com, click on the link at the top. Yeah, next week we will be back, and we will be finishing up Bob Layton's brief run on X-Factor. As we meet an awesome pink kid, Beast loses his fur, and the Alliance of Evil allies. You know, evilly. See you then. See you then.